Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning again. Um, in about a, a week or two, we're going to start a new series out of the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation where Jesus writes a number of letters to a, a, a bunch of prominent, significant churches in Asia Minor. And so we're going to dive into those letters in, in a couple weeks. So I had a free week this week where I could preach on anything. And this is the message that God really laid on my heart. So I'm just going to be obedient and deliver it and see how it goes. Uh, I know that it's not um, the most feel-good title. Uh, and maybe some of us are a little bit on alert about what might be said today, but I want you to hang with me. It's a pretty intense story out of the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13. It is not a delicate story. It's one of those stories that proves to me that God tells the truth because he doesn't hide the shameful stuff. Okay? He doesn't slip the dirt under the rug and pretend everything is tidy. This is one of those stories that shows us one of the most prominent families in God's unfolding plan and just how jacked up of a family they were. And so uh, we're going to look at, cha- at 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 22. I'm just going to read it for us. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother Shimeah. And one day, Jonadab said to Amnon, What's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are ill. And when your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when, he, when the king came to see him, Amnon asked him, Please let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I could eat it from her own hands. So David agreed and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, Come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it, and he will let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, He raped her. Then suddenly, Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. So the servant put put her out and locked the door behind her, She was wearing a long, beautiful robe, as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head. And then, with her face in her hands, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. Believe it or not, that is the word of God. 
That is not an easy story to hear. When I was reading it over and over this past week, my jaws were clenched the whole time. I was so angry over this story and what had happened to this young woman, Tamar. The immensity of the injustice done to her by people who had power she could not fight against. I chose the New Living Translation to read the text for you because I think it lets the story flow and gives us a sense that this is not some moral lesson out of a textbook, but it's the recording of real events in a family in space and time, something that actually happened. And it's a dark story of the unraveling of a man and how his unraveling because of sin brought destruction to an entire family and eventually to a whole nation. And as we look at this story, I think it's almost a textbook example of the way that sin works its way into people's lives and causes its damage. And so I want to look at that with you to, to see what we can observe about the way Amnon succumbed to sin and learn how we can guard against it without having to learn the lesson in as costly a manner as Amnon had to learn. You should know that the way the story continues is eventually Absalom cannot hold his rage in any further and he has Amnon killed. And so one sin as it often does, begets another sin. And after a while, no one even remembers what the original offense was. It is just a spiraling cycle of hatred and revenge and brokenness. And so I want to call you to guard your lives against the things to which Amnon didn't guard himself. Because sin, when it enters a person's life and grabs hold, has this very destructive, corrosive power. And if we don't actively guard against it, it will ravage your life. So the first thing I want to call you to guard against is guard your thought life. Guard your thought life. Listen to what it says here. Uh, there we go. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. Have you ever wanted someone or something so desperately, you felt it in your bones, it affected you physically. I saw glimpses of that when my daughter and her cousin and 10,000 other little girls went to the One Direction concert, and you see the video, and it's awe-inspiring. The absolute desire for those boys in the hearts of these little girls. Like, it's staggering. And we don't just have to look at that example. In your own heart, I am sure of it, there has been at some point something that has so grabbed a hold of you, it actually affected you physically. I mean, you wanted it or you wanted that person so badly, you couldn't eat, you couldn't sleep. Sometimes you just start crying for no, no explicable reason. You just, ah, why am I so messed up? And it's because desire has this incredible power over the human heart. Now, here's the thing. Not all such feelings are bad or wrong. It is exactly such a feeling that compelled me to pursue Jeannie and stay with her for five and a half years till we married. It's a feeling that has grown intensely over the last 20 years together. And so it's not that every time you feel this intense draw towards something, it's something to be mistrusted or repented of. Deep desire for something or someone can be of God. But we run into trouble when the power of desire intersects with things which God has told us are not good for us. It's when we have a desire for something in a time or in a manner or in a measure that God says is bad, it's wrong for you, and you cannot have it. It's precisely at that moment that the power of desire stops serving us and begins to betray us. Amnon could not help that he felt attracted to his half-sister. And I mean it when I say that. I, I think when we feel attraction, it's such a random thing. You know, you, you might look at me and go, eh, whatever. Jeannie looks at me, she's like, you know, she's, I can't explain it. She can't, she can't help herself. The woman is so attracted to me. And that's how random it is because you're like, you're like, wow, what? maybe she should go to an optometrist or something. But that's desire, isn't it? You can't always control what draws your heart out, what you're attracted to or drawn to. It's just that kind of a thing. It's mystery. And when it happens, 
It happens. It comes through you. It does its work. But that's where we're different from the animals. Animals are slaves to everything they desire. When they see something they want to eat, they will eat it. Unless you train a dog, it will eat whatever it wants to eat. It will pee where it wants to pee. It will poop where it wants to poop. You've seen the, the monkeys at the zoo. That's, and they're like 98% the same DNA as us, but they throw poo at each other. This is the difference between us and animals. Is animals have no choice. They obey every drive of their heart. But God says, you are different. You may feel desire intensely, but I've given you certain parameters in which you can express those desires because not every desire you feel will lead to a better life for you, will lead to glory for him. Some of the things you desire will really disgrace the God who saved you, disgrace you, and cost you far more than you're prepared to pay. That's the unreliability of human desire. And so God says, some things are sacred. They are lines drawn in the ground, which you are not permitted to cross. It's not because God wants to rob you of joy, but because he wants to preserve your joy. If you cross that line, there is no uncrossing it. There is no coming back from that place. We have to learn to appreciate what that sacred line represents for us. The, the way that the human heart works is that you can desire lots of things, but when you realize what your heart wants is not something which God has permitted, then it is the path of wisdom to put away that desire as early as possible. To respect the fact that God has raised a high fence between you and the object of desire and to say to you, though you want it, you simply cannot have it because the having of it will unravel your whole life. Rather than nipping it in the bud, Amnon walked right up to the fence where God had raised it and he pitched a tent and he stayed there. And he looked across at the other side and he fantasized, he obsessed, he daydreamed, he imagined what it would be like to one day just look at, at his half-sister and, hey, what's up? And she's like, hey, what's up yourself? And, you know, he pictured that day. It was never going to happen, but in his twisted mind, he kept making it happen because he needed it to happen. And he would play this out again and again and again and again. And he fantasized and obsessed so repeatedly over it that it began to take on a life of its own. There was a point at which he could no longer control these desires. They started to control him. That's what we call an addiction or an obsession is when something you want is no longer something you want. It wants you. It will have you. It has dominated you so thoroughly. You are no longer in any position to negotiate with it. It's going to run its course. See, everything we do, good or bad, ultimately arises out of our thought life, doesn't it? You know, none of us just suddenly go, oh, I don't know why I'm doing this. It's just so random. You may say that, but it all comes out of a place. The real life we live begins up here and down here in our hearts. Everything we do in this life first starts in the inner world and eventually makes its way out into the outer world. And that's why it's absolutely important for us to guard our thought lives because out of our thought lives, everything else in our lives will arise. Here's what Jesus' brother James said in his letter to the church. In James 1, verses 13 to 15, he said this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person, listen, is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, and this is the key here, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James uses the language of human reproduction to explain to us how sin works in the human heart. There's a point at which a desire which is forbidden is nurtured, is protected, cocooned away in the womb of the heart. And it's fed, it's nurtured, it's protected. It's kept away from prying eyes. And in that secret place... From conception, there's is what we call, what's the period, do you know the word? When, when the, the fetus is growing within the womb? Gestation. Not digestion. Gestation. 
And that's the seemingly idle period where so much is going on, where this thing, you can't even see it, but it's growing at such a phenomenal pace. They say that if a human fetus keeps growing at that same pace through the first nine months of its life out of the womb, it will become as tall as the Sears Tower. That's insane. In that first nine months of gestation, there is so much happening that you can't see. And that's the nature of obsession, of desire left away from all other eyes and out of accountability, is that that desire is being fed and it's growing into an obsession, and soon it will grow to the point where it cannot remain contained where it is. It will burst out because that's the nature of human desires. After a while, the thought life dynamics are no longer stimulating enough. It must burst out into the real world. And we've seen that played out in news stories again and again. Here's, here's the truth, okay? Um, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in the book of Romans chapter 7. He said, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Here's what he's saying. That though I love God as a follower of Christ and I love his commands, there is this other echo of my old sinful nature that is still raging inside of me, an enemy within, if you will. This beast that wants to come out. And most days when everyone else is cooperating, that beast stays quiet. But you do one thing wrong. The world hands you one bad day. You see one wrong impulse. And all of a sudden, the beast growls and wakes up and it wants to come out of the cage. And we live all of our human lives with this thing inside of us. One day, when Christ returns, we'll be free of that enemy within. But over the course of this earthly life, that will be a tension you and I will live with forever. Is that on our good days, we know this is a life God's given me. I'm going to live it faithfully. But then one little trigger, one little thing, and that thing inside you rages and shakes the bars of the cage and wants out. As if that were not trouble enough, here's what Peter reveals. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So he says, not only is there an enemy within, there's also an enemy without who is always... Have you ever seen a lion prowling? It's something, I, I usually don't think of lions this way. Lions I kind of think of as lazy 99% of the time. It's the Black Panther at the zoo that freaks me out. That thing's always plotting something. He's like, oh, come on. As soon as I get out of this, I'm going to figure it out. And when I do, you're dead. And he's looking at me like that. And he's, that's the feeling I get. That Black Panther, you know, at, at the, the zoo, he's, he doesn't stop moving, right? And it creeps me out because I realize if I turn my back up for one second on that thing, it would have me. And that's the nature of the devil. He's prowling around going, I'm going to find somebody. Easy pickings. The minute you let your guard down, I'm going to get you. And I'm going to devour you. I'm going to eat your life. That's what we're dealing with all the time. We've got an enemy within that wants to betray the things we love. We've got an enemy without who wants to destroy all the good things God's doing in us. Where are we supposed to go? And that's really what this idea of the sacred represents for us. It's like a sturdy cage which God has built around the heart to say, this is a line you just do not cross. And as long as you don't cross it, there will be relative safety there. Because when you cross that line, all bets are off. It's like opening the door of the cage, letting the beast within out, letting the enemy without in. There is no longer any guarantees. You cross the line of what we call sacred And there is literally no limit to the damage and evil we are capable of. I don't think that Amnon woke up that day going, I'm going to rape my sister. I don't think anybody wakes up going, that's what I'm going to do. But that's the thing is you do something, you go, that is unspeakable. We gasp. We shield our children's eyes from the news stories, send them out of the room because it's so horrific what people are capable of. But never presume that it's always other people who are capable of these things. We are really just one step away from the breakdown of civilization. You know that? 
And the things that, that hold your heart back are sacred things, things which you don't question because if you question them and violate them, everything unravels. You don't question, should a parent take care of their child? That's not even a question because if you don't, what happens? That child is undone. And so as difficult as it gets, you stay with that kid and you raise them right. You take care of them. You make sacrifices for them. There are times when you're tempted to come up to that line and go, I would just so love to, to, to get a break. There are sacred things like marriage vows, promises we make in front of other people to say, I promise only this person. And if you can cross that line, what other lines will you not cross? Really? The sanctity of a human life. You aim a gun at someone, you pull the trigger, you will permanently snuff out a life you have no right to take. You can't unkill someone. Oops, control Z, my bad. I shouldn't have done it. You did it. It's done. And yet again and again, when people cross the line of this thing we call sacred, things which are not to be questioned or even crossed, unthinkable things are done. Families are destroyed. Friendships are devastated. Lives are lost. So let me ask you the question. How strong is this concept of sacredness in your life? That some things are lines which God has drawn around us for our safety, our preservation, for the continuation of our joy and not to rob us of the zeal of life. And where does your mind take you with respect to that fence drawn around our hearts? Do you find that quite often you, your mind, your thought life takes you to the edge of that fence, longing for the life on the other side? If you don't nip that in the bud, that mental wandering will ultimately be your undoing. Because an obsession in the thought life will not stay trapped in the thought life forever. Now, here's the amazing thing, the good news. When Jesus redeemed us, it says in Scripture in many places, he set us free from our slavery to sin. Here's one of the things I think that means. That we no longer sin because it's our nature and we have no choice. We no longer sin the way an animal follows its instinct or its base nature. Now, every day in the post-Christ reality, sin is a choice. We can choose to sin or we can actually choose to resist sin. And now, because of the power and victory of Jesus, resistance is no longer futile. You know that story, like I think it was a duck or a mouse. Somebody gave a ride to a scorpion and said, promise you won't bite me when, we get, when I get to you to the other side. And the scorpion says, yeah, I promise. And they get to the other side and the scorpion psh, stings him. He goes, hey, man, I thought you promised. He goes, what do you want me to do? I'm a scorpion. It's my nature, right? That's the way we were without Christ, is even though we want it to be different, what can you do? Your nature is your nature. You really don't have a choice. But in Christ... Something has happened within us so that we are now free from that bondage that I couldn't help it. This is all I could do. We have power to resist. We can choose to align ourselves with Christ, even in our thought life. And if you don't start there, you will lose the battle in your hands and feet. Everything you do, good and bad, starts with your thought life. So guard your thought life. Here's another thing you should guard. You've got to guard your friendships. All right, to his credit, Amnon was really struggling, but he was struggling on his own. He had a mess with Tamar. Yeah, he was like burning with desire, but because he couldn't do anything, it was making him sick. Well, that's okay. I mean, if he's going to get sick by his twisted desire, so what? To his credit, he hadn't touched or approached his sister yet. And maybe, who knows, given enough time, he might have grown out of it. He might have overcome it. But as so many bad stories do, <clears throat> this one takes a turn with the words, but Amnon had a friend. Amnon had a... And we really... I wish the Hebrew had quotation marks, sarcastic quotation marks, because Amnon 
had a friend. You know what I'm saying? He had a friend. Very few people walk into self-destruction alone. We usually have a lot of company along the way. People cheering us on, watching like a car accident while we destroy everything. Here's the amazing thing to me. This friend, who also happened to be his cousin, Jonadab, didn't set out on a plot to ruin Amnon's life. He was genuinely, I think there's no reason to doubt the genuineness of Jonadab's concern for Amnon. He said, hey, buddy, dude, you're like the son of the king. I'm just a nephew. You're like the son. Why are you walking around moping? What is so hard about being the king's eldest son? You're going to have the throne one day. Poor baby, let me get out my violin. This guy can't understand why his friend and cousin looks so down all the time. By the way, if you have a friend whose life seems perfect, but they're always down, express a little concern. Something's not right there. Something is going on when a person shouldn't be down, but they're down all the time, and a friend will take notice and ask. So Jonadab does, in fact, what I think any good friend should do. He goes, dude, are you all right? What's going on? So far, so good. That is what a friend should do. Here's where it goes south. Amnon answers. Anyone look at, check it out. Here's the thing. I got the hots for my sister. I'm obsessed. I've got to have her. Now, listen, when someone says that to you, there is a right way and a wrong way to respond. The wrong way is high five. Let's figure out how you're going to get her. That's the wrong way to respond. The right way is, oh, man, that's tough. What are we going to do about this? We've got to kill this thing before it gets out of hand. So, so far, Jonadab is doing a good job. He's expressing the concern that any real friend should. We should all be at least as good a friend as Jonadab and asking when we see our friend is down, what's going on? But when your friend says something shocking like that to you, it's probably not the best thing to help him get what he wants. If you're 14 and your friend says, I hate my family, I want to run away, it's not a good friendship to say, oh, listen, I got some money saved up. I'm going to help you get out of there. Here's the thing. I don't think Jonadab was an evil guy. I think he was a lost guy. And in the course of trying to be a good friend, like the scorpion, he can only do what's in his nature. The advice Jonadab gives is consistent with who Jonadab is. He cannot suddenly give different advice than the advice he follows in his own life. He will tell his friends to do what he does. And, you know, we all love to pretend that we're totally impervious to the influence of others. I lead my friends. My friends don't affect me. They don't influence me. What a lie that is. Everybody is influenced by their friends. That's why they're your friends. If they couldn't affect you at all, who are you kidding? Why even spend the time with them? They are our friends because they have a deep influence on who we're becoming. They are shaping us even more than our pride will let us admit, aren't they? But the thing is that your friends can only advise you out of who they are deep down inside. Here's what I think I'm trying to say. Not all advice given by a loving friend is good advice. I know sometimes when you're in a jam and it seems like other people who represent God don't take any interest in you, then all of a sudden all these people surround you who seem to care about you, who take an interest in you, who listen to you, and so they start to tell you, listen, girl, just go. Hey, dude, forget it, man. Just take the money. When are you going to get a chance like this again? And They're telling you stuff, and all the while you feel loved by them because as they're saying it, it seems like they really want what you want. They want what you care about, what you desire. But here's something you need to understand. That advice is only as good as the heart and the foundation of the person giving it. You cannot take poop and put it in a perfume box and make it not poop. You can't give poop lovingly to someone And have it not be poop. 
And I don't mean to say like what they're saying is just put like his worth. What I'm saying is it, if it doesn't arise out of a biblical and Christ-centered foundation, then it arises from a different garden than the one you're planted in. You can't just make it right because they packaged it in the context of real concern for you. And if you're wise, you will know that. Here's the thing about Jonadab. Look at this. His character was so well known that the prophet Samuel was like, this guy's got a rep. Everybody knows, you know, Jonadab, this guy's a real crafty guy. Not, by crafty, it doesn't mean he makes potpourri at home and things like that. He, he, he's not a cross-stitcher. It means he really knows how to work it. He's always got an angle. This is a guy who, if you want something, he'll figure out a way to get it for you. He's like Leo Getz. Remember in, in the, the uh, movie with Mel Gibson? <laughs> Whatever you want, Leo Getz, right? Joe Pesci's character. He's like that guy. You name what you want, we'll figure out a way to make it happen. That was his nature. Now, it's not as if Amnon was carjacked by a friend who didn't have his best interest in mind. I think that Amnon knew Jonadab's character, which is why Jonadab was his best friend during this season of his life. I think we are drawn to people we know will tell us what we want to hear. In fact, sometimes I think we're drawn to friends who will give us the courage to make a decision we don't have the courage to make on our own. And if those friends had said with a little integrity, don't you dare cross that line. There's no coming back from that. You don't do that. If, if that friend had been that faithful, I think we would be spared. But so many well-meaning friends who don't love the God we love, who aren't headed for the places we're headed, whose values aren't the same as ours, they will say, man, whatever you want, just go for it. Be happy. I'm with you 100%. Whatever I can do to help you, go. I've got your back. Well, I've got your back is comforting unless you're right at the edge of a cliff and someone behind you isn't always so comforting, is it? And I think that's what happens to so many people is that when we want something we know is wrong, we are drawn to the friends who will encourage us to step over the edge of the cliff. And that's why so often people avoid me right at the cusp of a very bad decision. I go, hey, can I get together? And it's always the runaround. I got this, I got that. And I'm trying very hard to get in. Why is it you don't want to see me? And I, I, of course I know. Because I represent a voice in their life they really don't want to hear right then. And so they'll see another friend. Somebody who will whisper the things in their ear that will help them move forward with what they want. I think Amnon chose Jonadab intentionally as the voice of his conscience, as the one who would give him advice. So I want to ask you, who do you turn to for really important guidance? When you're struggling with something, you know, and let's not kid each other, you know what wrong is, right? Let's not pretend suddenly we became romper room and we don't know up and down, black and white. You know what wrong is. It may not feel wrong, but at least you know what wrong is. And you're struggling because you want what you feel to be right, even though you know it is right, wrong, you want it to be right. And when you're caught in that struggle, who do you turn to to help you resolve this? Who do you turn to? Examine carefully which voices you open up to in those critical moments because they will reveal a great deal about where your heart is. And not everyone who high-fives you and says they've got your back is a true friend. In their minds, they may really be loving you. I'm not telling you to hate them or blame them. They are being what they are. They're doing the best to be your friend. But who do you really listen to when you need a true friend? If that friend doesn't grow in the same garden you grow in, if they don't love the same Lord you love, I promise you what they tell you to do will take you further away from the God you love. That's why I believe that our truest friends ought to be friends with whom we share a bond in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the gold standard for friendship. He is the truest friend you're ever going to have because not only does he love you and care for you and have your best interest in mind, but unfailingly, he always wants for you what is truly best, not just what you want, but what you desperately need. You never have to question the motives of Jesus or whether he loves you or not. That is beyond question. He loves you all the time, perfectly faithful, will never fall asleep at the wheel on you. 
He will never betray you. He is the gold standard by which all other friends should be measured. And a friend who loves you but does not lead you towards Jesus is not a friend you need to remain open to at the critical moments of your life. So I want to encourage you, guard your friendships because they are affecting you far more than you can imagine. Finally, let me give you this last thing to guard against. Guard your expectations. Interesting thing happens when we come under the grip of a dark obsession is that all we think about is what we might gain. We never think about what we might lose. That's the way whenever the human heart wants something. Watch a guy who smells the possibility in the air that his lady will let him buy a sports car or motorcycle. Oh, yeah, totally. And then I could do this and get like an extra moonlighting job. And, we could, and you know, it's got gas efficiency. He's talking himself into it. Nothing's wrong with this deal at all. Everything is perfect. That's what the human heart is like when we want something. I totally need a new iPad because, you know, I'm trying to serve the Lord and the old one is straining my eyes. And what if I turn 60 and I can't see and I'm trying to serve the Lord, but I'm blind. And so I need the retinal display. I have to have it for the Lord. This is how it works when we want something. We suddenly realize everything is the upside. There is no downside. I'm going to gain everything. It's going to make me complete and happy and whole. And oh, it's going to be awesome until you get it. And if it's something God doesn't want you to have, I promise you, you will have the same experience Amnon did. Look what it says. As soon as he had raped her, then suddenly, suddenly, the very second, Amnon's love turned to hate. And here's the thing. He hated her more than he loved her. He, I can picture him literally kicking her away in disgust. Get out of here. Get off of me. Now, where do you think that's coming from? Because that's the part that made me want to punch him in the face the most. When I was reading this story, I was like, if I could go back in time and get in this room with this guy, bam, you know, I would punch him right there. It's so offensive. You, you violate someone and then you push them away like they make you sick. What is that? But I know we have felt it too. That same feeling of disgust and revulsion at the very moment of our falling. Do you realize that if we're honest about it, that disgust welling up in us is not disgust at the thing that has made us fall. It is ultimately self-loathing. It is disappointment with ourselves, disgust toward ourselves, because that thing which we have just fallen with is a visible, living reminder of how weak and in bondage we really are, how little power and control we have, even over our own conduct. It's a reminder, look what you are capable of. Look what you do. You who pretend to be something else, look what you are able to do. And it's the mirror, the reflection of who we are in that thing, which causes us to, re- to be rep- repulsed in disgust at the sight of it. I don't believe he was kicking Tamar out of the room. He was trying to kick himself out of the room. He couldn't take it anymore. I also think that he was repulsed by how disappointing the actual experience was compared to the fantasy. Because let me tell you, that's just the nature of fantasies, is you build in the privacy of your mental world a picture of how awesome it's going to be. But the reality, especially when you grab at something which God has not permitted, is never going to measure up to the fantasy. Never. God won't permit it to be as good as you thought it would. Maybe the first time you'll think, you'll, you'll be fooled into thinking it, but there's no future in grabbing for yourself the things which God has denied you. Not if you're a follower of Christ. If you're far from him, that's all you know. But once you have known God, you cannot find your happiness somewhere outside of that will. Many people have tried. They've walked away from marriages thinking that this new thing will make them happy. And they will lie vigorously to themselves and to everyone else. No, this is so much better. But there's no biblical way that that's possible. You grab at what God has denied you. You cannot find your way to the joy which God has offered you. You violate that line called sacred, and there isn't any coming back easily. 
We always think that somehow, if I get what my heart desires, I will be free and full and happy. I was just listening this week to the U2 song, Running to Stand Still. It's a haunting song about addiction, yet another song about addiction. But this one, I think, really hits it somewhere. And the line that's always haunted me is the line that says, Sweet the sin, bitter the taste in my mouth. Have you been there? A fleeting moment of dipping your toe on the other side of that line. And for a moment, it seems like it's going to be so sweet. But then it's so bitter, the taste. It's like, a, it's like a kid who smells coffee. And, you know, for most people, don't you think coffee smells better than it tastes? That's what sin is like. Oh, it smells so good. You watch it. Here, kid, taste it. Ah! It smells so good. How could it taste so vile? But that's the nature of it. The obsessions we have with things forbidden promise so much more than they ever deliver. But here's the thing. There's no greater joy than fully enjoying what God has given you without guilt, without a heavy heart, without a weighed down conscience. You can grab what you want now outside of God's way, outside of God's time, outside of God's measure. You can have what you want now, but there's no greater joy than getting it when God permits it, how God permits it, and how much God permits. When you take God's blessings His way, there is a joy and a peace associated with it that you cannot substitute by just grabbing what you want. That's why ill-gotten riches never produce the happiness that the wealthy person thinks they're going to have. That's why illicit love never becomes real love. That's why when you steal to get rich, you can't enjoy your wealth because you know how many people you destroyed to get what you wanted. You think you'll forget, but you'll never be permitted to forget. It will follow you and weigh you down until the day that you die. The thing is, it rarely is just our lives we destroy when we sin. When Amnon did what he did, he affected a lot of people. As David's eldest son, this catastrophe, this horrible thing he did, definitely threatened his claim to the throne, eventually led in his brother murdering him, and the upheaval in his extended family was unbelievable. He caused deep heartache to his father, David. He brought shame to the nation of Israel. He betrayed his own moral character. But perhaps worst among all of these things is that that one day of indulgence and selfishness devastated his sister Tamar's life forever. She never recovered. This beautiful young woman who stood to become married to an ally, enjoy a royal life in the court had a future to look forward to, spent the rest of her days living like a widow in her brother Absalom's house, condemned to a stolen life because of what her brother did in one day's rage and selfishness. Forever, he marked her life that way. And I've talked with people whose lives are similarly marked by a betrayal, by a wound given by somebody who wasn't thinking about anyone but themselves. How could you do what you did if you were thinking of anyone other than yourself? You do these things because you're only thinking of you, but you're not only affecting you, are you? And the wake of devastated, broken hearts behind you tells the story. So many people suffer when we decide to cross that line. So many people. And the reason that we have these lofty expectations and we grab at things to make us feel whole is because apart from Christ, our hearts really are empty. We're struggling to find some reason to live. I watched the interview of a young man who shot two Christian music producers outside of their studio in, uh, near Dallas, Texas. Totally unremorseful, totally unrepentant. And as he was being interviewed, they said, what you do? Yeah, I shot them. 
How do you feel about that? Nothing. Forget him. How can you say something like that? And his answer, I got nothing to live for. I don't care what I do. I don't care who I do it to. I got nothing. When you look at me, what do you see? That's what he has to interview. When you look at me, what do you see? Because apart from Christ, that is actually a very honest assessment of what it feels like to be alive. Who cares? Who really cares who I affect, what I do? All I've got is maybe a flash of happiness, and I'm done here. So whatever it costs you, you deal with it. i got to do mine. you got to do yours. Christ fills that vacuum in our hearts. He makes it so that you don't have to spend the rest of your time trying to scoop something in not to feel so hollow. He begins to introduce the sensation of wholeness into you if you will submit to him so that you don't have to spend the rest of your days grabbing at things that make you feel alive. You will be alive in Christ. And if you don't live out that relationship, that redemption, that gift of wholeness, then even though you come to church and even though you identify yourself as a Christian, what you'll discover is that the rest of your life will be spent still trying to fill in a hole which Christ has paid a great price to fill for you. You know, there's this great misconception that Christianity is all about don'ts. That God is this killjoy sitting up in his rocking chair going, don't anybody have any fun down there? I hear you. You're enjoying yourself. Shame, shame for laughing. And I don't think God's like that. I have enjoyed my life thoroughly. I have enjoyed my life with so many of you. We have done some awesome things together. I don't go to bed going, how pathetic is my existence? I don't. I don't believe that Christ tells us not to do things because he doesn't want us to be joyful. But it's because he loves us so much. He knows where our joy will be found. And he draws fences around our life to preserve that joy and hold it in. He says, child, I know your heart is prone to wander. Don't go places where I won't let you go. Your heart will take you there, but let me be the one who wins the day and tells you where to stay to find your joy. Is that not the promise of the shepherd's voice in Psalm 23? Stay here by the cool waters and the green grass. Don't wander from me because all the peace I promised is only to be found here, right here. Don't go. You may be tempted to wonder what's on the other side of that fence. But can we please just once learn from the unraveling of another person's life so that you don't have to become one more moral lesson in the vast broken story of the human race? See, there it goes again. Another one tried. Another one bit the dust. Live God's way. Honor the fences he's erected around your life for your sake. Because I promise you, and history illustrates, there is no joy in real life on the other side of those fences. May God give you the grace to live within the pastures he's created for you. May he give you the power over your thought life, the wisdom in choosing the friends who influence you, and sober expectations and real joy as you live in accepting the things he's given you his way, not grabbing for things which will only rob you of your life. Why don't we pray together? I don't know where this message finds you this morning, but maybe it's very relevant to where you are. So I'm just going to give you some invitations to pray in response during this time. Maybe your battle this morning is over your thought life, and you find that there is a recurring thought, an obsession, that you know in your heart does not honor God. It's wrong, it's destructive. But for some reason, like an addiction, you can't let it go. Will you cry out to Jesus? To 
exercise that freedom over sin which He has granted you. To claim dominion over your thoughts, to fill your mind with righteous thoughts. Maybe your struggle is with your relationships and you have friends around you who only love you, but they don't love Jesus. And as they high-five you and cheer you on, they are ushering you into your doom. Maybe your prayer needs to be, God, give me some friends who have the courage to really be a friend who brings me back to you. Even when I punish them for doing it, give me friends who have the courage to tell me what I need to hear, to bring me patiently, lovingly back to you. That's what I need, God. Maybe your struggle is because you're so discontent with the life that it seems God's given you. And you struggle so much with the seductive promise of a different life, a different choice. Learn from Amnon's story that those promises aren't true. They cannot deliver what they promise. Because the only joy and peace you'll find is in receiving what God has given you as a good father. Cry out to him. Say, help me accept and embrace this life you gave me. So wherever you may be, I'm going to invite you now to time of response. And let's pray to God in our own voices. And then the praise team will lead us into some singing. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.